Now, there's a lot of research out there that shows that the foods we eat and consume today are not nearly as high in these phytonutrients as they were even 30 or 40 years ago. So we have to regenerate soil in order to regenerate not only our ecosystems, but our own health as well. You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gervais. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gervais. My guest today is Gabe Brown. Gabe Brown is one of the pioneers of the current soil health movement, which focuses on the regeneration of our resources. They believe that healthy soil leads to clean air, clean water, healthy plants, animals, and people. Gabe, along with his wife Shelley and son Paul, own and operate Brown's Ranch, which is a diversified 6,000-acre farm and ranch near Bismarck, North Dakota. The ranch consists of several thousand acres of native perennial ranch land, along with perennial pasture land and cropland. Their ranch focuses on farming and ranching in nature's image. Even Brown's Ranch have received many forms of recognition for their work, one of which includes the Green Award from the Natural Resource Defense Council, and another is a Zero-Till Producer of the Year Award, just to name a few. Gabe has also been named one of the 25 most influential agriculture leaders in the United States. Last year, he also authored the book, Dirt to Soil, One Family's Journey into Regenerative Agriculture. He is also an instructor for soil health at the Soil Health Academy, which focuses on teaching others the power and the importance of healthy functioning ecosystems. We're so excited to have him on Food Integrity now. So don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Spotify at Food Integrity Now. Gabe, welcome to Food Integrity Now. Thank you. Pleased to be with you today. Oh, I am just really excited to have you on the show today. And I was saying to Gabe before we got started that I think a lot of people have heard the term regenerative farming, organic regenerative farming, regenerative agriculture, and I wanted to talk with you today because you're one of the leading experts on this subject. So you could just tell us the how and why we're moving toward this. And I think it's really exciting. But let's start out. I've already told our listeners uh, a little bit about you. And I want to know a little bit about your background, like how you got started and, and to where you are today. Yeah, so I actually grew up in town. I'm not from a farm or ranch. And I think that proved to be to my benefit because I, at a young age, uh, become interested and became interested in agriculture and took a vocational agriculture course in junior high school. And I was just infatuated with that. It, It just... The idea of working outside and working with nature was really appealing to me. Well, not being from a farmer ranch, I thought 
I would go to college and become an agriculture education teacher. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the path. Well, as good fortune to have it, I uh, fell in love with the right young lady and uh, her parents had a farm. And so after college, we were able to move back to her parents' ranch. And then eventually in 1991, we took that over. Now, what got me on the regenerative path, I learned much of farming and ranching from my father-in-law, which was his method was steeped in the conventional method, heavy tillage, use of fertilizers, pesticides, et cetera. Well, I could never understand. I, we're in a pretty brittle environment here in central North Dakota. He would be out tilling the field in the spring so we could seed, but then by July, we were short of moisture. And I thought, this doesn't make sense. So as soon as I had the opportunity, I converted the the farm to no-till and adopted that practice in order to save moisture and save time. How does that save moisture? Because because anytime you till or plow the soil, uh, for the listeners, think of it like your garden. You go out and till up a garden, well, that turns the soil over. It dries it out very quickly. Okay. Okay. So by not tilling, the moisture is not going to evaporate off near as quickly. And and so you conserve moisture. So then what happened, 1995, uh, the day before we were going to start combining our crop, we had a big hailstorm and I lost all my crop to that that hailstorm. So financially, that was very devastating, set us back. 1996 came along. We lost our entire crop to hail again. So two years of crop failure really set us back financially. 1997 came along and we dried out. It was a drought in the area, no crop. So three years of crop failure. Well, I had to learn, okay, the bank wasn't gonna loan me money anymore. How am I gonna make this land productive without buying all these inputs? Cause I can't afford to do so. To make a long story longer, 1998 came along and we lost 80% of our crop to hail. But think of what was happening in those four years. The hail beat the crop that was standing down onto the ground. That covered the soil protecting it. And then I started to plant different species of crops because I needed to, to uh, grow things in order to, to uh, provide income. So I needed diversity. I was learning these soil health principles. And that's really what propelled me down the regenerative path. Wow, that's amazing. So nature, many would consider a catastrophe to have four years of um, hail and, and other things. And in a way, it was kind of like your schooling to learn how well nature really can function um, if you apply its principles. That's exactly right. That's exactly what it was. It was it was an education. I tell people it was extremely difficult to live through, but absolutely the best thing that could have happened to me because mm-hmm. I wouldn't have gone down this path had it not been for for those four years of natural disaster. Yeah, it must have been discouraging, though, to have that happen four years in a row. 
That was very discouraging. <laughs> yeah. Well, you it, you know, it sounds like you you had to really get busy and get creative. And yeah. and so uh, you've also written a book, uh, Dirt to Soil, One Family's Journey into Regenerative Agriculture. And I just wanted to let our listeners know you've outlined a lot of these principles in, in that book as well. So, and that's available anywhere, right? Amazon right. and all that. Okay, yeah. great. So let's talk about some of those principles. I'll briefly touch on the six principles. There's six principles that are constant anywhere in the world where there's dry land production agriculture. Okay. Number one number one is context. Nature always acts in context. Bananas don't grow in North Dakota. It's not the right climate. So we have to grow crops and raise livestock that fit our environment, our context. Number two, that's the principle of no mechanical disturbance. Even in our gardens, I, I cannot understand why people would go out and till a garden. That's the worst thing you can do for putting nutrient density into the vegetables you're producing. Third principle is armor on the soil. Walk into a forest, walk out into a prairie. Nature always tries to cover the skin, the, the soil. The, you know, we got to armor it in order to protect that soil and provide the right habitat for biology. Fourth principle is diversity. In nature, you don't find monocultures. They're only where man put them. Yet, what are we doing in farming and ranching today? Monocultures, large fields, corn, soybeans, wheat, etc. Fifth principle is that of a living root in the soil as long as possible throughout the year. That's why we have, one of the reasons we have so much carbon in the atmosphere, not enough in the soil. We grow these crops, but only for a short amount of time. Then the the land sits idle. No, we need to put cover crops out there. We need to take that carbon out of the atmosphere in order to pump carbon into the soil to feed biology. And the final principle is animal and insect integration. Nature does not function properly without animals and insects. Yet what have we done? We've removed the animals from the landscape and put them into confinement. That's not where they belong. It's imperative that we get them out onto the landscape. Yeah. Those are the six principles. Yeah, that, that's great. Thanks for sharing those. You also say that our lives depend on the soil. Can you explain that a little further? Okay. The, the nutrients, you know, now obviously I'm talking about most products, fish, seafood, another exception, but the nutrients that we get to nourish our body come from the biology in the soil. The biology in the so soil brings those nutrients to the plant. The plant then is able to uh, utilize those nutrients to make all of these phytonutrient compounds. It's these phytonutrients that feed the biology in our gut microbiome, and that creates health. Take a look at what's going on in the world today with the COVID pandemic. Well, those who are unfortunately succumbing to it often have underlying health concerns, and it's a lack of a healthy gut microbiome that is the reason that COVID, that they become susceptible to COVID. If we would focus on producing nutrient-dense food, uh, we would have a much healthier population. And I'm of the belief that that 
food truly is preventative medicine. If it's food that's high in nutrient density. Now there's a lot of research out there that shows that the foods we eat and consume today are not nearly as high in these phytonutrients as they were even 30 or 40 years ago. So we have to regenerate soil in order to regenerate not only our ecosystems, but our own health as well. Exactly. Well, I'm a holistic nutritionist and that's the first place I start with people is having them have a healthy immune system through having a healthy microbiome. So right. I, I totally understand what you're saying. And um, if you're, if you're, I, I know you probably know Dr. Don Huber, and he's, he's been a guest on my show a few, few times. He's a um, plant pathologist, um, professor emeritus, Purdue University. Anyway, he really has a, a great understanding of the biology of plants. And Recently, he said he was um, testing some food that he bought um, in the grocery store. And he said that it, it's just really the nutrient density is so lacking. And I don't want to discourage people because um, organic is our best bet if that's all you have access to. But what you're talking about is just kind of like a revolution of um, making our soil healthier so that we really can get that nutrient density and go from there. You're exactly right. And there's some really good uh, work being done right now. Dr. Stefan Van Vliet at Duke University Medical Center is using a mass spectrometer where through metabolomics, they're able to measure and quantify over 2,500 different phytonutrient compounds. And to, we're doing some work with Dr. Van Vliet to show that foods grown in healthy, regenerative soils are much higher in all these phytonutrients. And I'm very good friends with Dr. Huber, very familiar with his work, and he's exactly right. We, we have basically destroyed the, the food production system to where we're really no longer producing food, we're producing food-like substances. Yep. It's not the nutrient density that we need to drive human health. Yeah, absolutely. And if we look at this, like you were saying, the, the pulse of America and what, what our health crisis is like right now, and it's huge. So people, I, I, I'm hoping that people are really starting to pay attention, and maybe COVID might be the wake-up call, about how, how they can increase their immune system and do their, do their research and listen to shows like this and, and to your YouTubes and things like that, so they can learn a little bit more about the importance of having that nutrient density in their food. That's right, that's yeah. good. That's yeah. what we need, it's about education. A absolutely. So with the, with the current production model of, of conventional farming and uh, monocultures and removing the animals or confining them 
Can you talk a little bit about what what really happens when you confine the animals versus grazing them year round? Sure, there's many different ramifications. First, I'll talk about to the ecosystem and then I'll get into the nutrient density of the, the meat that that animal is producing itself. Okay. So our ecosystems evolved with Think of it this way, centuries ago, if you could imagine the bison moving across the plains, they would take a bite out of a, off a plant and they'd move on, they'd trample and defecate, urinate, move on. Well, once that plant is bitten by an animal, it sends off root exudates to attract biology, to bring it nutrients so it can regrow. That process then takes more carbon out of the atmosphere and puts it in the soil because that plant is regrowing. So that's, that's very critical to mitigating climate change. The trampling effect guy lays down material, plant material on the soil surface. That also feeds soil microbiology. Defecation, urination, that's cycling nutrients. So negative ramifications on the landscape if we remove animals from it. Now, to the point of the meat quality, nutrient density itself. Think of it this way. On my ranch here in North Dakota, we have documented over 140 different plant species growing in some of our pastures. So Dr. Fred Provenza in his work shows that animals have the capability to self-medicate, so to speak. They can select plants based on their nutritional needs. So on any given day, my cows, for instance, may eat over a hundred different plant species, okay? That gives them a very diverse array of all these phytonutrients to keep them healthy. Now, if we remove the animals from the landscape and put them in a feedlot, how many different feeds are those animals going to be fed? Well, I can tell you it's very, very minimal, usually less than five. So there's less new phytonutrients in their meat, which then we consume. So which, which animal is going to meet our nutritional needs? Ones that have a very diverse diet or ones that have a very limited diet? It's no different than us as human beings. If we were eat, if we only ate the same, say five foods every day for a month, how would we feel, right? Right. Yet we're we're asking those animals to supply us with a wide array of these phytonutrients. It's not, not going to happen. Plain and simple. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think you raise a really good point because. Uh, some people may not realize or may not have just thought this through that when you eat a piece of meat or chicken or whatever, and perhaps they don't think about what has this animal been fed, how has it been raised, and all those things are, are very important as to what you just spoke about, about the, the nutrients that they were fed that they're able to pass to us. So it's kind of just changing the mindset of really being more connected to your food and, and knowing what you're eating. 
And that's, a, that's exactly right. And it kind of goes to the point of some of this lab-based meat or even some of the plant-based meat substitutes. Yeah. You're really narrowing down the phytonutrients that you're providing to your gut microbiome when you yeah. do that. Yeah. I know there's groups of people that uh, vilify the use of animals because of the conventional method and the methane gases. And uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that, about the methane? Sure. And, and let me, here's how I answer those. Uh, first of all, I agree with them. I think it is cruel to a large degree what we do to animals, locking them into confinement. I mean, go into a poultry house, walk into an egg laying facility and look at chickens cram laying hens crammed into a crate. That, that's not, you know, showing respect for those animals, in my opinion. Yeah. Now you come to my farm and look at 1400 land hens going around in the pasture eating grasshoppers and whatever they want that land hen I feel is leading a good life yeah. and she's producing very nutrient dense eggs okay now as far as the methane okay it's estimated that there was up to 75 million bison grazing across North America pre-european settlement okay if you look at that, and realize bison are a ruminant, and then you add to that the elk and deer, there was actually more ruminants grazing on this continent then than there are now, okay? So how can cattle emitting methane be an issue? It wasn't an issue back then for the bison. See, what people don't understand, there's uh, my organisms called methanotrophs. Methanotrophs eat methane. They're naturally occurring in soil environments out on pastures. So as an animal is grazing, it's belching, it's emitting methane, but the methanotrophs are consuming a part of that. Okay, so that's never taken into account. Again, it's about working with nature. Yeah. It's not the cow that's the problem, it's the how. We need to get animals out of confinement, get them back onto the natural landscapes. Yeah. So um, it's interesting about the, I think the word is misanthropes. Am I saying that correctly? Methanotrophs. So, okay. Methanotrophs. Okay. Yep. So uh, is that like a bacteria or what is it exactly? Yes. It's a naturally occurring bacteria, microorganism. Yep. Well, isn't nature amazing? It really does have the answer, doesn't it? Nature is self-organizing, self-regulating, and self-healing. Nature will always win if we allow her to. Our problem is we work against nature instead of with her. Well, we try to control nature. That's exactly right. And it's not working. No, not at all. Yeah. And I think that's the nature of many humans that they want they want to control. And I don't think, you know, I'm not saying humanity's, you know, all that screwed up, but it's just, it's an education thing too. And I think that's why, you know, we do shows like this so that people can, can learn how amazing nature is. 
That's right. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about the financial side of uh, the way you farm versus uh, conventional agriculture. Well, I was just going to say the big difference is you drive by my farm. It pretty much looks like any other farmer ranch with the exception uh, I will always have green growing plants, obviously not in the dead of winter, but when possible, mm-hmm. there's going to be cover crops growing. There's going to be a lot more diversity of diversity of cash crops, diversity of cover crops. And, you know, most farms do not have the wide array of livestock that we have because we have we have cattle, we have sheep, we have chickens, we have broilers, we have turkeys, you know, we have all these different species, hogs, we have all these different species of livestock. So it's just a, it's kind of like an old McDonald farm, you know, just a lot more, <laughs> a lot more diversity and different species. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, but the, the, the financial side of it is, um, is very different. I know that a lot of uh, conventional uh, farmers and monocrops with soybeans and corn and things like that, they are actually government subsidized and you're not. So um, how does that work for you? Yes. and And I tell people, I used to take part in that model because I was farming, ranching conventionally. But as I you know, it's kind of an evolution, not only an evolution in the soil on a farm and, and in the diversity you have on a farm, but it's an evolution of mindset also. As I went down the regenerative path and it became much more profitable, think of this, a corn and soybean farmer only has two crops they can sell, either corn or soybeans. Well, I still raise those crops, but I raise a multitude of other crops, plus all these livestock species. And I have more than one enterprise on a particular acre because we can grow a a corn crop, but then I can have a cover crop, which is being grazed by all these livestock. That adds revenue. It adds dollars. So as my profitability increased, I'm going, why should the American taxpayers subsidize and pay me? When I'm making a decent living, I'm making a profit. If my business cannot survive on its own, it shouldn't be a business, right? right. It shouldn't be. I always tell my friends who are farmers and ranchers, look, we're not substituting Ma and Pa's restaurant down on Main Street. Why should we as farmers and ranchers be subsidized? No, shouldn't be. So I just refuse to take any government payments, you know. My son who has the ranch now, he's 33 years old and he's never accepted a government payment. Now, yes, people say, well, yes, he has the COVID stimulus. Well, yeah, he took that check and donated it to charity. You know, (laughs) fact of the matter is we're just not going to, there's no reason because of the profitability in regenerative ag, there's no reason for the taxpayers to subsidize us. And, And Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, did some very good work on this where he looked at compared regenerative farms versus conventional farms, mm-hmm. 78% higher profitability on the regenerative farms. Let me give you some inter- interesting statistics here. 
And the last statistics we had were for 2019, 46% of net farm income nationwide was from subsidies. In some states, such as Kansas, it was 76%. Wow. 76% of farm income from subsidies. Okay. They shouldn't be farming and ranching anymore, uh, plain and simple. And I, I catch a lot of static from that, from yeah. making that comment from my farming and ranching friends, but it's the truth. You know, it's not really a, a viable business if it relies on subsidies in order to stay, stay cash positive. Yeah. Well, I know something else that you do to save money on ranch is you, you use your waste whereas maybe the conventional farmer wouldn't go, go to that same level. So can you give us an example of how you might use some waste? Sure. So the way to generate real profit is to take the waste stream from one enterprise to fuel the profit in another. So you mentioned about corn farmers a moment ago. So a farmer grows corn, well, when they haul that corn to the grain terminal to sell, the grain terminal is gonna run that through a little machine that takes out all the cracked and broken kernels and the weed seeds and that. And then they deduct that from what they pay the farmer. Well, what do chickens eat? Chickens eat cracked and broken kernels and weed seeds. Yeah. So we actually, on the grain we grow on our farm, we run it through a grain cleaner, take those materials out, cracked and broken kernels, weed seeds. That's what feeds all our laying hens. It feeds our broilers. It feeds our turkeys. It's cash flow positive. It's a win-win situation. Why yeah. wouldn't all farms do things like that? Yeah, you know? it just makes sense. Sure, it's it's just good business. Is what yeah, yeah, yeah. So how many people do you have working at your farm? Um, yeah, and uh, people are always amazed by this because uh, they think such a large operation. Really, it's our 33-year-old son runs it. Uh, my wife uh, cleans the eggs and does the book work. I help out occasionally when I'm home, but I'm not home a whole lot because I'm traveling uh educating people as to regenerative ag. And then my son does have one hired man. So wow. that's it, that's all. And, and how many acres? It's about 6,000. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. But, but realize though, what don't we do? Okay, my neighbors, they're running to the co-op to buy fertilizer and then they gotta apply the fertilizer. They're going buying chemicals, they gotta apply the chemicals, okay? They're running their livestock, what's called processing them, vaccinating them, giving them shots, pouring them for uh, insect pests. We don't do any of that because our livestock are healthy. There's no need to do that. We don't buy any fertilizer, haven't bought fertilizer since 2007. No need to because our soil's healthy. We don't have to spray for pests because we have all the predator insects that consume the pests. So we don't have to do all those other things. That means we need less labor. Yeah, that, I, I think that's just wonderful. And uh, I know your son has a business too. Um, and uh, I have a 
nourished by nature. Tell us a little bit about that. Nourished by nature. That's all of the products that we grow and raise on our farm. So it's, he uh, markets grass-finished beef, grass-finished lamb, honey, pastured pork, uh, eggs, broiler, chickens, turkeys, all the products that he raises, he then markets directly to consumers. Wow, that's fantastic. Now, um, how wide an area of the U.S. does he, yeah. he, he uh, provide for? Okay, our goal is to sell it all locally. In saying that, he has demand and he ships anywhere in the continental United States. And he ships this product uh, uh, to anywhere in the U.S. They just go on his website and order. And, and uh, he, every week he ships out nationally. Wow. And how big a client base does he have for this? Yeah, right now he has about 8,000 customers that he's selling to. Wow. Of those, there's probably about 2,000 that are buying, you know, on a very regular basis every month. And then the remainder buy intermittently. Wow. That's great. Do you feel that it, with conventional farming, moving to this way of, um, you know, direct to farm sales would be beneficial? Well, again, it's about why wouldn't you people do that? We're in North Dakota and people think, well, I don't live near a big city. I can't sell to people. You know, I won't be able to sell my product. Well, we live in North Dakota. There's only 730,000 people in the whole state, you know, and we're able <laughs> to do it, you know, right? Yeah. That, that's just people who don't want to go through the extra work it entails. But yeah. from a profitability standpoint, you can make significant profit doing it. So why wouldn't you do it? It's good business. Yeah. So it's you're not business. home. You're not home a whole lot. You mentioned that earlier because you're you're out educating. How much of that do you do? And do you travel? Well, probably pre-COVID. I'm talking about. You travel um, outside the country doing this, Gabe? Actually. Uh, in 2019, 2018, 2019, I was on the road over 280 days each year. Even with COVID in 2020, I was on the road over 240 days. Oh, COVID wow. didn't slow us down a whole lot. That's uh, right. <laughs> we do travel out of the country some. I prefer to stay in the United States. I I, I always tell people I got enough work to do here. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree. You know. Uh, I get requests every day to travel worldwide, but, but, and I have done some overseas traveling, but I prefer to stay in the U.S. Yeah. And yeah. Canada. I spent a lot of time in Canada, not since COVID, but. Yeah. Well, uh, we're glad you're doing that because it certainly is important to get this education out. I, I uh, interviewed Matt Powers this week too, who has a, a book that um, out called Regenerative Soil. And it's, um, well, it's, it's a great education. Everything that you've spoken about, just apply, you can take that down to a smaller scale. Yep. And yeah, we've done this on, in a flower pot on a deck in New York City, on up to uh, ranches over a million acres in size. The same yeah. principles apply. You know, yeah. obviously, you're not going to you're not going to graze a cow on the deck in New York City, but <laughs> you can certainly have bees and insects there. Yeah, yeah. Do you have bees? We do. We yeah. we we uh, uh, 
provide honey. You know, we produce honey. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, it certainly has been a, a pleasure to have you on today. And I've, I know I've learned some things and I hope our listeners have. And I just really admire the work you're doing and just appreciate you being our guest today and teaching us a little bit more about regenerative agriculture. It certainly is the way of the future and I hope people really embrace it. Well, thank you, Carol. A pleasure being with you today. Yeah, thank you again. Take care and you have a great, great year. Thank you. Bye-bye. You too.